Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. We are off this week reporting on some amazing news stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from months past in this special Rewind episode. Our first piece today is on inmate firefighters in Nevada from our former intern, Zach Bright. After that, former reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and photographer David Calvert talk about their experience reporting on a sustainable ranch outside Elko. At the end of the show, reporter Daniel Rothberg talks with Monica Arienzo, a researcher with the Desert Research Institute looking into microplastics in our environment. Nevada and many other states allow incarcerated individuals to join fire crews during the wildfire season, paying them a salary and granting time off their sentence. Inmate firefighters often do much of the same work of other firefighters, but for a fraction of the pay, only $24 a day. Several state elected officials say that this is not only wrong, but a form of modern day enslavement, echoing a growing chorus of critics opposed to low wages for inmates. Reporter Zach Bright has been reporting on inmate firefighters during this past fire season and joined me to talk more about payment issues. So I am here with intern Zach Bright. By the time you hear this, it'll be former intern Zach Bright. Zach, you're finishing up with us. We're talking about inmate firefighters. So Zach, when we're talking about inmate firefighters, are we talking about just any inmate or, or who are we talking about? Who are these, these firefighters that are incarcerated? The people who are part of the program have to meet certain qualifications. So these people are incarcerated people in minimum security facilities, and they have to be within two years of their release to be eligible to work as a firefighter. So right now, currently, 185 are assigned to fight fires of the 740 who make up the conservation crews for the Division of Forestry. And the big issue right now is payment, right? They're, they're not making very much money. How much money are they making right now per day? Yeah, in my conversations with the Division of Forestry, the state forester had told me that they're making $24 a day for each day of work that they do. Yeah, and compared to a normal firefighter, obviously, that's quite a bit less. Right, yeah, that's actually an hour of training that a state-employed firefighter makes on average. So when we're talking about this, this issue of of incarcerated firefighters making less money. Is this something that people see as kind of a moral failing within the system? Or is this more of uh, like, are the inmates themselves asking for more pay? Or, or where's the, where is kind of the fight starting? Yeah, I know a number of state officials have voiced their concerns and complaints about this. The previous Lieutenant Governor, Kate Marshall, had said- It is my view that $2.23 a day is a form of enslavement. And we don't do that in this country. And so I would like us to look at other solutions, what other states are doing with respect to facilitating a robust firefighting force. She said that back in June during this audit committee meeting where they had talked a little bit about pay. And she actually thought that there should be a second audit looking into how a pay raise could happen and what that could kind of look like. My basic concern is that I would really be interested if 
the audit division could do a second audit into alternative solutions or more comprehensive methods of dealing with firefighting. To say that we are at high risk right now in the West is an understatement. One of the issues that I see in this report is that you are paying inmates $2.23 a day to put their life at risk. For the record, Casey Casey, State Forester Fire Warden, I agree with you. I don't know where the $2.23 a day came from. When I became State Forester, we were paying $2.10 a day. Prior to that, it was a dollar a day for project work. We do pay um, more for firefighting forces. They get paid by the hour, 24 hours a day, so it's $24 a day for their time on fire. In addition to um, that time, they get time off their sentence, so we also pay, it's up to 15 um, credits off of their sentence, which can be up to, I think it's 30 or 45 days um, off their sentence. That's part of the reason we get people coming through this program. When we're talking about a pay raise and what that could look like, how would that be implemented? Is that from the state level or are we, are we talking about you know the prisons themselves? What it comes down to, according to the state forester, is that the budget needs to be expanded for the Division of Forestry and for the Department of Corrections because they work in tandem to create this inmate firefighting program, but that budget needs to go up. Right now, she said they're looking to make small incremental raises, but that wouldn't be that much because she says they're working in the current constraints of the budget for this year. So they have to wait until the next cycle comes around to really request more money. Are the inmates that are fighting these fires, are they volunteering for this position? Is this something that they're kind of like being asked to do or where, where do they fall? It's a voluntary opportunity. Not only do they make the $24 a day, but they also get a certain amount of time off reduced from their sentence. State officials like the former lieutenant governor believe that that pay should be higher. Whether or not someone's incarcerated, that is a human life. Other states, and this is what I would like a second audit to look into, in addition to early release, have looked into recruitment programs for post-incarcerated persons. The fact that someone has that training while they are incarcerated does not mean they can use that training once they have been released from incarceration due to the fact that they may not, under their parole, be allowed to leave the county. They may not be able to clear their record, and so therefore may not be able to work on a firefighting line because they have a record. Yeah, I mean, are, are these, these are firefighters that are on the front lines risking a lot of times their safety. How much of the state's firefighting force, you know, are these inmates? Yeah, so I believe that number is 30% of the Division of Forestry's firefighting force, but I believe overall that's 1% of the state's entire firefighting force made up of local forces, state-level forces, and national forces. The program goes back to the 50s, and it's been in place for a while. And the idea behind it was to create the system where inmates can learn work skills and supposedly have an easier transition upon their release back into society. But the problem is that a lot of inmates don't end up being eligible for a lot of firefighting jobs out there. And that's another concern too, that there's not a clear pipeline for uh, inmate firefighters to become full-time firefighters if that's something they wanted to pursue. If you'd like to learn more about inmate firefighters, you can read Zach's full story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Hi, this is Kristen Leonard, the Audience Engagement Manager here at the Nevada Independent. 
Did you know we have a daily newsletter that highlights our top stories and provides you with links to the Nevada news you need to know? The Daily Indie also features commentary from our editor, Elizabeth Thompson, quotes, photos, and a tweet of the day. If you'd like to subscribe to this free newsletter, you can go online to thenevadaindependent.com forward slash newsletters. You can also find The Daily Indie and all of our other newsletters on our homepage. Just enter your email and we'll keep you in the loop. Ranching can take a lot out of the land, and how it's done today can affect how productive the land will be in the future. The next segment explores an innovative way that one Nevada ranch is trying to be sustainable for generations to come. All right, well, I am here with reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez and David Calvert, our photographer. And you guys were out at Secret Pass Ranch recently, close to Elko, where where you're living, Jasmine. This is a, a, a family that's been out there for a really long time. They're doing regenerative ranching, which is a, a pretty interesting form of ranching. And, and you know, so let's start with how you found the story and, and what made you interested in it. Yeah. So the attorney general for Nevada, Aaron Ford, took a trip out to the ranch while he was on a rural tour. Since I was in the area, I went and just met Jared Sorensen, who is the owner of the ranch, lives there with his family. It's him and his wife, Selena, their nine kids. And through learning about all of the efforts on his ranch, in addition to having their own private business of selling grass-fed meat, decided that it would be fun to go out and get some photos of this really beautiful area and just spend the day with them to see what their life is like out there. Yeah. So David, tell me a little bit about what you saw when you got out there and how it looks different than a normal ranch. Yeah. So, I mean, we were out there in the, the beginning of winter, so it, it was cold, it was windy. It's hard to sort of tell a lot of the things that they're doing at this time of year, but I've seen photos of the ranch in the springtime and talking with Jared and, and Selena about their thoughts on water and soil and, and what their regenerative practices really do. It, it feels very natural. It feels very, I would just say, less less affected by agriculture than some of the, the, the ranches that I photographed in the state. And, and when you talk about regenerative ranching, I'm going to have trouble saying that word this entire episode. Um, so what are they selling? They're selling grass-fed meat, organic meat. So as of right now, they're not certified organic, even mm-hmm. though they do manage to those standards. Jared mentioned that to him, the regenerative label means more to him. And he feels that the organic standards or labels, a lot of those companies are after the label because there's an increased market share and increased profitability. People are looking for organic food items these days. So what is regenerative farming? Like, What does that mean? Yeah, so it's actually like encompasses a lot of ranching management styles. And so this includes trying to take care of the land where like one example that Jared used was that his grandfather and father would get rid of trees. If it wasn't grass, it didn't belong. And so something he's been doing differently is that they leave the trees alone. They let everything grow along the riparian areas where there's a creek and water flowing. And so he thinks that leaving that up helps heal the water cycle, which helps the ranch be more resilient to drought. Nevada is so heavily affected by drought. They don't use pesticides or things like that on their ranch either. A big cornerstone of regenerative ranching is taking care of the soil. So the soil has become a priority because it's one of the biggest markers on the ranch. The livestock spend so much time eating from there and 
all of those different things that affects the livestock, which then affects the meat, which then affects whoever is eating the meat. So that's the way that the Sorensen see it. And so one of their big priorities is to take care of the soil, make sure that the soil is healthy. Yeah, and so they do that in a couple of ways. They're also doing what they described as a, a holistic approach to grazing. So they're moving um, the cattle uh, a little bit more frequently than you would in a, a large pasture. So you're, they're spending less time in, in particular areas, so sort of less damage to those fields and just because something is is labeled organic doesn't necessarily mean that that's good for the environment sometimes what's best for the, for the land and, and for the cattle and and ultimately for the people that are consuming that meat is care more about things like vegetation and water and and the, t- the health of the topsoil and sort of the biome there than than you do necessarily about that certification yeah and, and one thing that really stood out in the story too was Two animals popped up in the story that popped out to me, which was beavers and sage grouse. I don't think of beavers as being out in the middle of the desert. Obviously, when there's water and some trees, you can get some beavers. So tell me a little bit about his, his experience with both the sage grouse and the beavers. Yeah, so he is part of the Nevada Conservation Credit Program. And so he has an active relationship with sage grouse in that way that in being part of this program, he has to conserve 10,000 acres for sage grouse um, habitat protection. He earns credits and then mining or development companies can buy those credits. And the program doesn't only include protecting sage grouse habitat that's already there. It also provides an incentive to create sage grouse habitat where sage grouse could be. So it's just helping create the conditions for sage grouse to be in Nevada where it's not listed on the endangered species list, but its population has been declining. So that's a concern. And this is one of the state's efforts to try and mitigate that. And as for the beaver, Jared mentioned that that is a keystone species in the area. So when they see the beaver come back, they'll know that it's truly sustainable. Ranchers and beavers have had a not great relationship. Historically, they can plug up irrigation ditches. And so ranchers didn't see them in the most positive light. But that's another thing that is changing in this generation, at least on this ranch. You know, Jared wants to see the beavers come back because they can help hold water on the landscape, which, as we mentioned before, helps make their ranching area more resilient to drought. And there is, I've seen beaver in Lamoille Canyon. So I know that they're out there. It was only once, but it was really cool. So David, there were also some photos that you shared uh, on your Twitter that didn't make it into the, the story. Tell me about the day. Tell me about getting out there and, and shooting those photos and, and talking to the people. Yeah, so the day started um, with an interview around their their dining room table. And and while that was going on, the kids were actually in the kitchen and like preparing like sweets for Christmas presents. They were wrapping caramels and they had little chocolate haystacks and and things. And so while while Jasmine was talking with Selena and Jared, I, I drifted in there and hung out with the kids for a while and made some really cool pictures of them in their kitchen. And and then it's it's a hundred year old ranch home, so it's just a cool, cool building to be in. They 
have a mudroom with all of the like jackets and boots and hats and gloves and everything that their large family needs. And so like there was the process of them getting all dressed to go outside and, and take their group photo. Also gave us the chance to see Jared's Wallapini, which is a greenhouse based off of a, a design from South America. It's, it's sort of dug into the earth. And that didn't make it into the story. And a lot of times the photos I take don't necessarily relate to exactly what we're talking about. But I thought it was an interesting element because we spent all this time talking about regenerative ranching and their sort of thoughts on agriculture and, and, and sustainability. And one of the things that they did during the pandemic was realize that they needed more fresh produce, not just for their family, but also as maybe something that they can sell to community members. And so they they built this this greenhouse that if you take a look at my Twitter, you can see some of the photos. It's They're incredible. They had 50, 60 different kinds of vegetables growing. We were there in December and they were fresh strawberries. And you don't realize that it's like 25 degrees outside. It was it was tropical. <laughs> <laughs> I like your subtle plug of your Twitter there at Calvert photo. If anyone wants to see those pictures. <laughs> like Calvert mentioned, it was freezing out there. I think I was wearing two jackets and my eyes like wouldn't stop crying because the wind was you know, blowing so hard that day, but it was definitely all worth it. Yeah, and I'm just excited because now that Jasmine is in northeastern Nevada, we have a little bit more of a connection to to some of these ranching and agriculture families. And, and I hope it's something that we continue to revisit because when we talk about things like ranching and mining and agriculture, like these, these are very rural stories, but they're a big part of sort of what makes Nevada a state. And the, the environmental impacts of these industries um, are important and as are the economic ones. And I really like that we have a chance to tell more of these stories. So I look forward to more trips with Jasmine out to Lamoille and Clover Valley, Wells. Uh, I think it's something that our readers should look forward to. Yeah, we're really excited to have you out there, Jasmine, and to be reporting on all that stuff. And if you have any stories that you want to pitch Jasmine or any of us, uh, make sure to email us. And uh, Jasmine is jasmine at theenvyindy.com. You can also just go to our website. So thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast today. And we look forward to hearing more ranching stories soon. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Joey. Hi, I'm Howard Stutz, the game reporter at the Nevada Independent. If you're interested in the state's tourism recovery, national gaming news, and the international casino market and how it relates to Nevada, then please consider giving my newsletter, Indie Gaming, a read. You can subscribe to Indie Gaming by going to thenevadaindependent.com forward slash newsletter. You can also find it on our homepage. Just enter your email address and I'll make sure you're up to date every Wednesday morning on the latest in Nevada gaming news. Monica Arienzo is part of the microplastics research team at the Desert Research Institute located in northern Nevada. Microplastics are small pieces of plastic that vary in size and shape and come from things like synthetic fibers and plastic bags. Arienzo has been looking into how microplastics move through the ecosystem, specifically in watersheds. There have been traces of it found in our snowpacks and in our rivers and lakes. Arienzo and her team at DRI recently received a five-year grant from the National Science Foundation to study microplastics. Our environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg talked with Arienzo about microplastics this week for his newsletter in the environment, which comes out every Wednesday. I kind of just want to get a sense of 
what the goals of the of DRI's microplastics lab are and why this is an important issue to be investigating. So my research at DRI focuses on trying to understand human impacts to the environment locally here in in our region in Northern California, Northern Nevada area. We've been really trying to understand the microplastics in snow and downstream water resources. So Lake Tahoe is a really great example because most of the water that's in Lake Tahoe actually comes from snow melt. So when the snow melts in the, in the springtime, that water makes its way into Lake Tahoe and then that water makes eventually its way downstream to Reno and even further downstream to the to Pyramid Lake. And we really want to understand how microplastics are moving in that system. So starting from the snow, so as this snow accumulates in the wintertime, how much and what type of plastics are present in the snow? And then as the snow begins to melt, how are those plastics moving in that system? And then how are they making their way into streams and downstream water resources? Mm -hmm. And then we'll also look at this over time. So do we see variations as we move from, say, Tahoe, where there's a lot of people that are recreating, as we move to other parts of the Sierra, where maybe there's more remote locations, do we see a different amount or type of plastics? And then how does that change as we go from year to year? Yeah. What do we know about microplastics right now? And what are some of the open questions that you know you and other researchers are investigating? Well, to start, there's a lot we don't know about microplastics, and this is part of why it's so exciting as a scientist. Here in the Western United States, we've seen that microplastics are present in rainwater and in snow, in the freshwater streams and in freshwater lakes out here. We have found microplastics in fairly remote locations. Really, we are getting this picture that these are fairly ubiquitous, so we're finding them all throughout the environment. But there's a lot of questions about where are they coming from, so what are the sources of those plastics? And my group has been trying to look at one potential source being dryers, so every time you dry your clothes, that hot air vents outside of your house. So that's one source we've been tackling. But other studies suggest sources like, for example, tire wear can be a source of rubbers. But there also may be these very dispersed sources like, you know, just think about all the plastic you see in your, you know, daily life, right? The plastic on the side of the road that's breaking down. And a lot of work has also been focusing on impacts to freshwater ecosystems and trying to understand sort of the ecotoxicology of microplastics. There's also potential variation in the shape of plastics. For example, clothing will create fibers, so long and thin pieces of plastic, whereas your tire rubber may form something that's more spherical in shape versus say a plastic bag may break down to form more of a film-like shape. And that's important when we start to think about how are these things moving in the environment? A sphere may move slightly differently than a long thin fiber. I think it's really difficult for me even to kind of grasp exactly how plastic maybe being consumed in a city or from a clothing dryer could end up in some of these more remote areas that you sort of think of as pristine or untouched by humans. How does that happen and what does that signify to you? I don't think we quite know how this happens yet because plastics are very different than other things that we've studied in the atmosphere. For example, plastic 
because it has this wide variety of shapes and sizes, it doesn't behave like other particles we would see in the atmosphere, like dust, right? Dust, we, we tend to know kind of the shape and size of dust, whereas plastics are have this much broader size and shape. How how harmful are plastics to to humans or other kind of wildlife and species? One of the concerns is obviously large pieces of plastic, if they get consumed by an animal, they can, you know, cause puncture wounds or other like physical issues. With smaller plastics, they may be passed easily, but there's also potential concerns for if there's other chemicals or other things basically attached onto that plastic. So the plastic may be acting as a vehicle for bringing other chemicals into the body of that animal or, or the human. Well, I guess I, I'm thinking about it. I interact with plastic a lot in my life. Tires, I just, everything that I, not even thinking about it, we think about water bottles and plastic bags and stuff, but there's plastic and things that I don't even think about. And I'm curious to the extent that your lab is involved in the solution stuff and human behavior side of things, how, how should the public interpret this and think about just the distribution of microplastics in the environment? It's something that people should be aware of. I think, you know, we'll definitely be seeing more in this area of trying to understand plastics and, and especially like the human interaction with plastics. The really interesting thing about studying plastics is that we interact with it on a daily basis and we can all take steps to reduce the amount of plastic we use. The really big thing I would say, which unfortunately is still a problem, is properly disposing of trash. So when you drive along the highway or even when you're hiking in, in the woods, right, you can still find plastic trash in these areas. And so making sure that we encourage we ourselves and we encourage those around us to always properly dispose of plastic is really important because then at least it's, it's getting into the landfill and not into the environment. What is it that makes plastic decompose in a way where you end up with microplastics? Is that heat or environmental factors? When we don't properly dispose of our trash and it's sitting out in the environment, it's going to be exposed to UV radiation. And that UV radiation over time will break it down and cause plastics to become more brittle. I know personally I can share, like all winter long, I had a little five gallon bucket sitting outside my house and we were storing, I think, some like soil in it. And I went to lift it up this spring and it just started falling apart. And, it, and that's because it was sitting there exposed to this UV radiation and that was making the plastic brittle. So when I went to pick it up, it just broke. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? I think for me, the, the fun part about studying microplastics is the connection that we all have to plastics and sort of it's not this sort of you know ambiguous chemical right we all interact with plastics and we all have a role to play in helping to reduce our plastic use encourage recycling and i think that i, I really enjoy that part of studying this and i think that there's a lot of opportunities for ways we can engage the public in our research through citizen science or through cleanups or something like that because it is such an important part of the research we do. That was our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg, talking with the Desert Research Institute's Monica Arienzo. If you want to read more of Daniel's reporting, you can find it on our website, as well as by subscribing to Indie Environment by clicking on the subscription box on the right side of our website. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. And you can donate to The Nevada Independent on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. We'll be back next week with more reporting from in and around the Silver State. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.